1: The Slaughter Podcast will be discussing topics that some listeners may find disturbing. If you're still listening, you've implied consent. Carry on!
2: Hi guys, and welcome to episode 31 of Slaughter. I'm Emma. I'm Lucy. That's
0: it. It's got on no one else is here. We've got no other friends. Um, so this week I'm going to be telling you about the Titchborne Claimant. Oh. Now... <laughs> so, it, there is a film of the same name I didn't watch it so no one can say that I copied from the film I didn't see it, I don't know shit but I'm probably going to watch it afterwards so it's not a murder but it was a story that I read and I found it super interesting so it's from a book which caught my eye in the library because. I
2: kick you going to a
0: library I know, I'm going to keep mentioning it so many times I had to join specifically for this um <laughs> But I love one of these titles. It's called "Fakers, Forgers, and Phonies." By so the guy's called Magnus Magnuson, <laughs> and I was like, "The only fucking faker here is him." That's such a fake name, and I was blabbing on and on and on about how it's stupid a name it was. He's a real guy. He used to present Mastermind.
2: Why is his name Magnus
0: Magnuson?
2: What kind of parent decides on
0: that? Cruel <laughs>
2: fuckers. And he's
0: real, and and like so, Titchborne Park is in Hampshire, and it's home to um there's a large estate there's a big house there titchbourne hall and it's belonged to the titchbourne family for absolute <laughs> centuries it sounds like the smurfs or the Wombles or something they <laughs> all lived in titchbourne hall the titchbourne family at the dark dark house there's a dark dark street those ones yes. some skeletons lived they did my mum used to get so mad when I brought home the Funny Bones books. Really? Yeah, she didn't. They're like my favorite. She doesn't like anything with skeletons. She thinks it's oh. evil. And that's probably what
2: got me into true crime or like death and la- the macabre. I loved Funny Bones. Um, so it did have a title of a baronet and the trap door. Did you used to watch that? No. Don't you open that trap door? I don't know
0: what something not... It was weird. Trap door. I'm just adding my own jingles to it. I've never seen it. Trap, trap, tra- <laughs> Are you trapped in the door? It's a trap door. <laughs> so Titchborne Park had the title of a baronet, and the the title's now lapsed. You don't get to be a baronet no mo. Um, but it is still a cherished home of the descendants from this family. They still live there. So the inheritance of this estate was part of a huge legal battle in the Victorian times, and it was a big story in across the country made the news now you're reviving it for us
2: all to bring it back
0: so before we go into the claimant story so the claim to the estate um there is another story in the family's history that did impact on the estate and it's some believe that it's the reason for the whole claimant legal battle we're going back to the 13th century whoa i know we ain't never been there before time team never went by that far um, so Lady Mabella Tichborn, she was dying, okay, she was, she knew she was out, and she knew that her husband, the Lord, he was grumpy and he was miserly, and so she asked as her dying wish that every year he would bequest a dole of bread to any poor person who came to the house on Lady Day, which is the Feast of Annunciation, and he would give to them. So that was her one thing, I want you to keep this up every year, and he did agree that he would donate all of the corn from the field that his wife could cover while dying. What? So he wants his dying wife to go and walk through a field. And as far as you can get, that amount of corn is what I'll give. <laughs> Fucking cruel Sh- bastard. Sod all. That. And just to make sure she didn't have some second wind, he also added that she had to do it while holding a burning brand. Oh my god. <laughs> just in case she manages. But she called his bluff on it so she dragged herself hands and knees dragged herself through 23 acres oh shit like you know they say there's no like a woman scorned like she was gonna fucking (laughs) stick it to him their marriage must have been the worst she's dying he's like fine go walk through fields with burning metal and she's well i'll just fucking show you (laughs) crawling through the fields so these fields are still to this day known as the crawls.
2: Amazing. Because of this.
0: But she was going to make sure this agreement was completely watertight. So not legal documents. Not going in for those in the 13th century. She couldn't trust her husband. So the only way to make sure he would keep to his word was to curse the estate and the descendants. So if anyone... Could, can anyone just curse stuff? Catholics can definitely curse stuff, apparently. Only Catholic. I don't know. They were Catholic. and Catholics and witches. And witches. Same thing. (laughs) Um, So she cursed it. Said that anyone who didn't keep up giving out this doll on Lady Day would have a generation of seven sons. I don't know why that's the worst, other than they stink. (laughs) Followed by a generation of seven daughters, which would be the worst. And make a musical of all their family. This incestual fabulosity. (laughs) Um... But yeah, so seven sons followed by seven daughters. So then, obviously then, without any male heirs from the generation of seven daughters, the name would die out and the estate would just collapse. So you've got to keep up giving to the poor. Now, Dole Day was becoming a bit unmanageable. It was basically a riot by the end, because all the people from around knew there'd be free food given out on this day. So all the, everyone would come and things were getting damaged, people were getting injured. So by the late 1700s, it's been going for 400 years by this point, so fair play. By the late 1700s, they stopped it. And the seventh baronet who was there at that time went on to have seven sons. Oh shit. And the eighth baronet, Sir Henry Joseph Tichborne succeeded him and had seven daughters. You'd think this wouldn't matter too much because the seven sons, like if the girls don't succeed, then it goes to the second born son. He might have a child that's Mm. a, a boy. But, so out of the seven sons, the first one had seven daughters. We heard about him. So then the second oldest son died unmarried, age 30. No children. The third son did succeed for a while, but he had no male sons. The fifth one, I know I've missed one, but the fifth one <laughs> was killed during an Indian mutiny at age 18. The sixth one died at 13. And the seventh one was married but didn't have any boys. So it was all left to the fourth brother, James Tichborne, and he went and married a French woman. How dare! You. How very dare! You. And she was the illegitimate daughter of a really big family in France, the Bourbon Conti, and they did have a son, Roger Tichborne, and he's going to be go. the hero of the story by just getting money by having a dick. <laughs> yeah. Or did he, as we'll find out? so he would eventually succeed Roger it was the idea, so but things didn't run smoothly. so his parents had a stormy marriage, his mother, Henriette, was known as being particularly demanding and had a dislike of England, and particularly English people where she'd gone to live and the particular English people she hated were all of her new family. <laughs> So she insisted that her husband and her son uh, came and lived with her in France. So Roger was actually born in Paris, and his mother refused to let him attend school because she thought he was too delicate. So he was a proper little French homeschooled boy, Amelie, but the
2: boy version.
0: Hmm. Not seen her.
2: You've not seen. I Amelie? know the but oh aren't my I? god, I love Amelie. Um, but his because bar- it it's got subtitles. I watch everything with subtitles.
0: You, you know do, this. Yeah. So his father, however, he was adamant that if he's going to be an English baronet, he needs to go to school in England and be a proper English gentleman. It wasn't until Roger was 16 that his father was able to get his way. So the 8th baronet, the one with the 7 daughters, and Roger's uncle, he died in 1845. So Roger and his father went to England for the funeral. And while they were there, he secretly enrolled him into Stonyhurst College in Lancashire, which was a big Roman Catholic school, and didn't tell the mother and just went home without him huh. <laughs> left him there he's gone now <laughs> forget him so she was absolutely livid but roger he loved it he was really yeah. successful at school played lots of sports played bandy he probably
2: wanted friends what's bandy it's hockey for weirdos <laughs> <laughs> i saw some kids playing cricket it's catholic hockey so i was like yeah. fuck you posh kids <laughs> How dare you?
0: So this is when he learnt to speak English fluently because he'd been a native French speaker. He is a French guy. I know that shouldn't be surprising. So he learnt to speak English fluently but it is important to remember that he kept his French accent because he'd been speaking French until he was 16. He had a proper French accent. And he wanted to be cool as well. Well, they didn't like the French in England back then. No, that's true. So when he left school, he joined the army but he didn't really progress much. He was never made officer because he was... French. Well, yeah, he was too French. He also had the nickname Titch from Titchborn, but for a particular reason.
2: He was small.
0: He had a retracted penis. Oh my God. Is that worse than a micro penis? I believe so.
2: Retracted. Like
0: actually up inside, I guess. a vagina. I guess so. I hadn't thought of it that way. A vagina isn't an absence of penis. It's got its own shit going on.
2: Yeah, but a retracted one is a whole.
0: I mean, he doesn't go into detail about it. I, I feel we need more. Yeah. Because does it, can it retract? like a kendo. And can it then tract as yeah. well? <laughs> like, does it come out?
2: Like when like got a
0: tortoise head. An innie nipple that pops out. Do you have one? No. Um. I mean, I don't even know. It, Magnus Bankston says that he had one. Personally, I think if your name's Titch, I think that sounds like the sort of thing that could be a rumour though and just stick.
2: Yeah. Well, did you know that French guy's got no knob?
0: Yeah. And then you just actually...
2: spread it, don't you?
0: But um, so just to add to his sorrows, he fell in love with a girl who was his first cousin. <laughs> but the family... Probably the only girl he'd ever met. I think so. <laughs> the family were pretty okay with it. Oh. The only problem is that Roman Catholic Church didn't allow first cousins to marry... And they sort of treated him as their own and they were happy for them to be engaged. But then he started to drink and he smoked and that actually we don't think you're going to be the one for her. So they, the parents said to her, look, you need to be single for at least three years with no communication and then see where we are at the end of it.
2: I mean, that's pretty harsh. That would put anyone off.
0: Well, that's their plan. Yeah. Um. So before he was to leave and have their three-year hiatus, he wrote a secret note for Catherine, his first cousin, and to give to her. He also made a copy of it and put it in a sealed envelope and left it with a friend, should anything happen to him. And basically it said that he promised to marry her, he would come back. Aww. They were, She was the love of his life, they were going to be together. You would say that at the beginning of the three years, wouldn't you? <laughs> of course. So at this time, he sent it, and he didn't want to go back to Paris. He referred to his Paris home as a hellhole... And he was determined to go travelling while he was waiting for his love. Gap-yar. Yeah, gap 3 yards, y y So he travelled. So he travelled to South America, went all around there, and he would always send long letters home to tell them everything that he was doing. He kept diaries of what he was up to. Very prolific writing writer. But in 1854, he was sailing from Rio de Janeiro to Jamaica on an English ship called the Bella, But four days after setting sail, the boat was found capsized with no survivors. I mean,
2: you'd think they'd want to protect him, seeing as he's the only heir. But they're like, yeah, just go travelling, it's fine. His mother really did. She never wanted him to go. They sort of fell out
0: over it and there was a lot of tension. But I think that's why he wanted to go. She'd kept him from going to school and then she was wanting to keep him there. He was rebelling, for sure. Um, But yeah, so he was declared, Roger Titchborne was then declared legally dead. And his mother just refused to accept it. A lot of people hypothesize that she probably just felt really, really guilty over the fact that their relationship deteriorated. And so she then became obsessed with this belief that he was still alive. She would keep a light burning all night long to guide him home in the hallway. She would regularly get sucked in by down-and-out sailors who would say, oh, I knew him, and she'd give them money so that they'd tell her things about So, that yeah, they'd tell her things about him, or maybe they'd seen him and she was going around and spending money on these people to try and get information. Nine years later, 1863, she took it up a level and started to place ads in newspapers in South America, in Australia, all across the world, and offered a considerable reward for anyone who had information on her son. I mean,
2: she's gonna get fleeced, isn't she?
0: So October 1865, so this is now 11 years after he'd disappeared, word had reached an Australian newspaper that a Mr. Gibbs had spotted Roger Tichborne. Yeah, I bet. So the man who was spotted was a client of the lawyer, Mr. Gibbs, and he owed him a lot of money. He was living in Wagga Wagga. <laughs> Wagga, Wagga. Wagga and Mama. He, and he was going by the name of Thomas Castro. So he was a huge man and he had a butcher's and it was facing bankruptcy. So he was, had really bad financial troubles. And Gibbs knew that Thomas Castro was not his real name. He knew it was an assumed name and that he had once lived in England and Castro had often said that he belonged to a distinguished family in England and he had an inheritance waiting for him. He also said that he'd been rescued from a shipwreck and taken to Australia. So, correspondence began with Roger's mother and Mr Gibbs sending letters back and forth. But they were mainly just talking about finance. They wanted the details of the money. And she did refuse to pay anything until she knew for certain that yeah. it was Roger.
2: Of course. Tensible.
0: Yeah. So, they asked Castro to write a letter himself to her. A personal letter. Something to let your mum know it's you. And So, was he saying, yes, I'm him then? Yeah. Okay. He, he wasn't a good writer, um, it was there were spelling mistakes all the way through, capital letters all in the wrong place. And as we know, Roger had been educated properly. Yeah. He used to write letters all the time. He would be constantly sending letters home. So yeah. then to hear nothing and then to get this letter, and it basically said, um, I'm sorry like I is
2: your son, gives I, money
0: now. Thanks, Mum. <laughs> Something along those lines. <laughs> it said, Oh, it's hard, I don't know how to start this after so long a time. I'm really sorry. Send me £200 so I can go to England, is very much what it said. She's like, yeah, you'll do. Well, yeah, she fell for it completely. Okay, She had had another son. Roger did have a brother, but he had died that year. So she was left then with no children and was clinging to it. She knew there were inconsistencies because in his letter he'd mentioned things that she was like, "Mm." but she just said, Oh, Roger's getting things everything, he's getting everything confused in his head. It's like he's dreaming, like, but it's fine. I know it's him, but she still didn't send the money. Good. Castro had absolutely nothing now and he was reliant on Mr Gibbs for everything, his generosity. He married an illiterate domestic servant and she became pregnant, this Mary. So all three of them were relying on the lawyer. So he needed to get the money. And Roger's mother, she said there's an ex-valet of someone in the family, one of the Titchborns, who knew Roger when he was a child and he's now living in Australia. And he was a guy called Bogle. And so she said, if you go and see him and he recognises it as Roger, that's I'll accept it properly. So she then sent in another letter lots of details about Roger's childhood to the lawyer so that they would know if Bogle was saying the right things. But obviously the lawyer just fed all of that to Castro. So he then had details about the yeah. part he was going to play. With this information, Castro went to the, a bank... And used the details that he knew to convince them that he was Roger Titchborn and to give him a bank account with unlimited credit. Whoa. So even though, uh, when he went there, he got his mother's name wrong. <laughs> she would p- kept putting H.F. Titchborn. And so he just said it was Hannah Francis when her name was actually Henriette Felicity. (laughs) So not even a little bit. Not even close. We didn't even pick French names. No. He doesn't know his mother's French at this point. So Castro then, with his unlimited credit, went full monopoly, bought a hotel. £10,000. Like, just don't push it, you might get away with it, but. And he was living in it. I mean, that's what you would do, wouldn't you? Why buy a house and live in it and do shit for yourself? Buy a hotel and have people do things for you. Right. Uh, so, Bogle, the ex valet, did come to visit, and he apparently had no trouble recognizing him as Roger, even though he looked wildly different. <laughs> So I do have pictures of the two men, Ooh. if you'd like to see, and you yes. can give us your impression of them. So this is Roger Titchborn, here. What, lying dead this in a de- Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So he's slim. He looks like Hugh Laurie. Yeah, slim, young straight young. dark hair, um, quite a long face. Yeah. Pretty-ish. This is Thomas Castro. no. He's about three times the size. He's Jewish. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) And he's not. He's got curly hair. Yeah. He's he's a different hair colour. He's got one of those weird Amish beards. I mean, the... Neck
2: beard. Because he's gone from thin to much bigger. No, there's no similarities at all between them. Well, that's part of the plan. Some people say, I mean, he
0: is—he's about twenty stone. He went up to about twenty-four stone at one point. They said that that part of that is possibly a plan that he put on so much weight. So, so that, he, like, yeah, because oh, then you're like, yeah. of course he looks different. He's so fat now. Yeah. Um, but Bogle and and Roger Thomas became really close friends. So in 1866. He set sail for England as Sir Roger Tichborne with his wife, his baby, and Bogle, who was an ex-servant, he was black too, so it looks to people at the time as though, of course he's an English gentleman, look, he's got his servant, he's got his family, Yeah, it seemed legit. So he arrived in England on Christmas Day, and Henriette, of course, wanted him to come straight to Paris to see her, that's the whole reason he was
2: coming. Could he speak French?
0: No. So she wanted him to come to Paris.
2: Learn French. Yeah. Um, At least ordering in a restaurant French. Bonjour. Petit pois pour vous. Chabit in Angleterre. <laughs> Je suis mini suis... oh. um, So yeah, she wanted him
0: to come to her. None of the rest of the family believed in him. So she's like, just come to me. They won't accept you. Just don't bother with them. But when he got to England, he didn't go to the Titchborn family. He went straight to the east end of London to ask about where a family was called Orton. And the next day, he went to visit the sister of a man called Arthur Orton, a butcher who had gone to sea, abandoned his ship and settled in Australia using the name Thomas Castro. So, he definitely wasn't Roger. So then he went to Tichborne to reveal himself and they were less than impressed Partly because he was so huge. They thought anything to excess is just vulgar in England then. Anyway, the Victorians did not like excess. So he then, when he was there though, he made allies with an old solicitor of the Tichborne family and was able to get more information from him. So after a week, he finally went to Paris to meet his mother. He then wrote a letter saying, I can't come, I'm too ill. I mean, obviously, she was like, this is ridiculous. I've waited months for you to come from Australia. Then you went to England. You're finally here and you won't come and see me. So she went to the hotel to see him. When she got there, he didn't get up. The room was dark. The blinds were closed. He was wrapped up in duvet sausage roll facing the wall. (laughs) So he wouldn't even turn to look at her. And she went over, she had to bend over to him to kiss him on the cheek because he wasn't laying down, wouldn't look at her. And apparently she recognised him because he had ears like his uncle's. Oh my God. If you're using ears to identify someone, you're in trouble. Yeah. If they're not even yours or his dad, they're the uncle's ears. (laughs) You're really clutching at straws. Yeah. But she just was so happy. She had a son back. She loved him. And she started, She then immediately transferred the £1,000 a year allowance for the heir of Titchborn. It had been to her daughter-in-law, who had a son. She just went, nope, not yours anymore, and gave it away to Castro, you'd think Alton, if she was Roger. If
2: she was so keen, you'd think someone else would have done this before, because anyone, she would have gone, yep, done, yeah. you're him. I mean, he did have the
0: fact they had to be in another country. Yeah. Um, and they had these people, Bogle recognized him.
2: Mm. He
0: had some validation.
2: Yeah.
0: She also handed him all of his personal diaries back and all the letters that he'd written to her, she gave him back. So he could swat up. Exactly. She's helping out, basically. She didn't even care that he couldn't speak French. Uh, she didn't even <laughs> care that he. <laughs> Is that Spanish? I can't even speak English right now. <laughs> she didn't even care that he couldn't speak French. Roger had a tattoo, which this guy didn't have. Oh my god! Yeah, you could see if he'd got a tattoo after, but he lost a tattoo. He couldn't recognise any family members, no. and he still didn't know her name. <laughs> so the, she basically just brushed it all on the carpet by saying it's stress, it's amnesia. He suffered a trauma in the shipwreck. He he doesn't know things. His skin got know, lasered somehow. He had a brain transplant. So then they all went to England. Him, his wife, their baby, um, Henriette. They all went to England and they she set him up with a house in Croydon. But despite being so thrilled to have him back, eventually she was still can't fucking stand England Yeah, and left. She also couldn't stand the constant stream of people coming to the house. Solicitors coming to help him with his claim. Money lenders coming to get stuff out of him. Ex-soldiers constantly coming in because they were signing affidavits to say that he was Roger Titchborn. So they were all working on this campaign to get him legal recognition say so that he was him. So then there became the two sides. There was the family, the Tichwan family, who were totally convinced it wasn't him. But even other members of the family, not just her, then. No, the, so one said there's a the family excluding her, the Titch They didn't think it was him. Okay. At all. They brought his the love of his life, Catherine, his cousin, his ex-fiancee. They brought her. He didn't have a clue who ah. she was. And he called her Lucy. Ah. Just <laughs> plucking names out of places. He did a Luke, basically. <laughs> <laughs> just called him. The family were there. It's not him. Ridiculous. They were on one side of the lawsuit. And the other side was the claimant, as we'll call him now, because Thomas, Arthur, Roger, could be anyone. So the claimant. And they were going around and they were getting as many signed statements as they could. No one from the family, but they were getting anyone who was a soldier to say that they were in the army together. They were going around the local villages, getting people just to say, oh, does he look like... Roger when he was here they'd go to the pub in the evenings and have just go around to everyone and get them all to sign things
2: I'd sign anything if I was drunk yeah Yeah. they're saying it's
0: almost like entertainment people would go out in the evenings and chat in the pub and write these come up with these stories and sign them and they published all of these um affidavits in a huge book so the family on their part went into investigation mode to try and find out what the link was between Thomas Castro and Arthur Orton, who he was inquiring about, so Arthur Orton was the, from a family of butchers, and when he was younger, he was too sick to go to school. He had a nervous condition called St Vitus dance, which like has involuntary jerks and ticks and things, so he didn't go have any formal schooling and um, but at the age of fifteen, his dad thought right. I know how to cure this illness that's too bad for you to go to school. Send you to sea. (laughs) If you can't handle school, he's definitely not going to be able to handle a ship.
2: My granddad was convinced the sea air was good for everything. Breathe in that sea air. But to work on one. It's like when you get an
0: episode of Judge Judy and someone's claiming for a jet ski and she's like, well, what's your job? I'm like, oh, I'm I'm disabled though. (laughs) But jet skiing, fine. (laughs) Working in an office, no. (laughs) Um, So he sent him to sea, but he didn't like it. So he did jump his ship in Valparaiso. Valparaiso? So he did jump his ship, and then he came back, but he came back home from there. He came back home, he worked as a butcher with his dad. In 1852, he had gone to Australia, because someone wanted Shetland ponies in Australia. They're like, "The the shit they've got here. Won't work. The kangaroos won't pull plows. We're not having it. (laughs) So he was going to escort the ponies to Australia. And then didn't come back. He just set up a life there. He then apparently became a member of a sheep-stealing gang. And so was outlawed. And had to assume the name of Thomas Castro. And in Wagga Wagga as a butcher. Which is where he heard of Lady Tichborne's advertisement. But in 1868... Lady Tichborne had died. So the allowance was stopped to the claimant, and now he really needed to get recognised because he had no money. And he had to inherit the lot. Yes. So the family filed a chancery suit, basically because they thought, attack's the best defence, it's going to be long, it's going to be expensive, we'll just get him to run out of money. He'll have to drop the case. There's no way he can fight it they discovered that he had used the name Arthur Orton when he was in Australia, and his brother identified him as being Arthur Orton. So Charles Orton, his brother, said, yeah, no, that's him. I know him. <laughs> and Magnus Magnuson in the book, says describes Charles Orton as being a ne'er-do-well brother. I think fucking he's the only one telling the truth here. Why is he... <laughs> oh, he spoiled it. <laughs>
2: oh, he's honest.
0: He's done the right thing. But... He was available for sale because the claimant was able to buy his silence for a while while he still had money left over. But when his allowance was stopped and he couldn't afford it, Charles then went straight back to the Tichborne solicitors and signed an affidavit to say, yeah, he's my brother, Arthur. (laughs) So So, needing money, they set up the Tichborne Defence Fund for people to donate to the cause. And he also started selling... Titchborne bonds. I was you say, Titchborne
2: t-shirts. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, so basically he would blaze the trail for every Nigerian prince that was to come. <laughs> he would say to people, Right, I'm going to inherit this. If you invest in me now, yeah. when I take it, I'll pay you back with interest. So yeah. it was basically a scam that people are still using today. I'm
2: surprised I didn't work on his brother.
0: Yeah. But he was only able to raise, well, they wanted 100,000. He was able to raise 40,000, but they'd spent it within 18 months on lawyers and everything else. So this was now a huge story for the public, Mm. and it completely divided opinion between the upper and lower classes. The lower classes sort of felt like he's being judged because they think he's not fit to be a gentleman, and... They wanted him to win and they wanted him to succeed. Whereas the upper classes, we're all being attacked here. If people start trying to take what's ours by birthright, yeah. So it definitely caused a split. Then the claimant made a move. He tried to he evict the tenant of Tichborne Hall, saying, "I'm Roger Tichborne, Get out of my house." So the the lawsuit came of Tichborne versus this Colonel Lushington. <laughs> It's fabulous, isn't it? Huh? Sounds like the, a Lashington So Lushington. So they needed the, he thought this will be an easy way to prove my identity without going against the Tichborne family. If I fight this battle of against Lushington, they'll have to say that I'm Roger Tichborne so that I can evict him, but it's not going to be the huge expensive battle that I'll be fighting with the family. Yeah. So he was trying to go about it a different way. So the claimant had over a hundred witnesses to testify that he was Roger and it took 10 days to cross-examine all of them before the claimant was called to the stand. He was all right at first when it was his turn to speak, but then when he was cross-examined, he was flustered, he contradicted himself and then they brought up the sealed note that he'd given to his fiance before he left Mm. and basically said, if you're him, tell us what you wrote in it. Yeah. And he was like, Of course I'm not gonna tell you. That wouldn't go against my that would go against my codes of chivalry. It's private. It's between me and a lover. I can't tell you that and refused. And they pushed and pushed and pushed. So he said they were like, Why is it private? What does it tell us? So him being a working class boy I think, What would you keep private in a letter? He said, Well, it it we said that we had sex before marriage in the note and the jury completely turned against him. They were all at the time the jury was all um richer people the yeah. ones that could vote and things like that and for victorian england for him to say claim that a lady because it was his first cousin so she is titled has had sex with him before marriage she's now married Slandered her name yeah so they completely were like he's ridiculous he's horrible we yeah. don't like him so it was 102 days in court oh my goodness and they just his case was ruined. And the judge ordered him to be detained for perjury. So he'd lost the case and said, "We know you're not so ready right to say for him. it in the note." Did
2: they open the note? Oh no,
0: the note it said it just said, "You know, I promise I'll, when I come back, I'll marry you. I love you forever." That sort of stuff. So it was completely crap. Yeah. Oh yeah, it was completely crap. So he's then been detained for perjury. He was arrested, and he was bailed for ten thousand pounds. I don't know where they got it from, but he was released on bail with ten thousand pounds. He was charged on two counts. One was for 23 cases of perjury and one was for forgery because he was selling the bonds that he didn't own. So he had a year before the trial came. And so all that year they were holding public rallies, getting people to support him, trying to build, get more money, get more people to come and be witnesses. So this time... The prosecution had 188 days. I mean, it's just insanely long, going on forever and ever. I don't. I haven't looked into it, but this has to have influenced when Charles Dickens was writing Bleak House. Uh, do you know it? A little bit. And at the start, it's all based on this case Jarndyce versus Jarndyce, which is a Chancery case that's gone on for years and years and years and years. They mm-hmm. think it's never going to end. So 188 days. They have 215 witnesses. Mm-hmm. For the prosecution, 300 for the defence now. And the defence lawyer, because in this case, because it's now criminal, at the time the defendant wasn't allowed to speak. The defence lawyer was having to go it alone and he was just coming up with wild things. He was saying that it's a conspiracy, everyone's trying to shut him down. He blamed the government, he blamed um, the church, he blamed the family. He even said that the Jesuits were trying to poison him because they wanted him gone, part of the Roman Catholic Church. He just went wild with it. Which obviously, the judge and the jury were like, what the fuck? (laughs) So, summing up, by the judge, by them, I mean how uh, it was lengthy. This case has gone a long time, but you're summing up, you're closing, um, summing up by the judge. How long would you say was a, a long amount of time to talk for?
2: Well, for someone to listen to someone just saying... for summing up, rounding it all up. In conclusion, say but... an hour. Twenty-two days. What? Three weeks. Like so, they had to keep so saying to him. That's not summarizing. It's not.
0: That's a he needs to learn a skill. That's yeah. Summarizing should be brief. But every day they had to go. Oh, I'm sorry. Can you hold it there? It's lunch. Oh, wait. Can you just stop there? We're going home. You would have thought after a day. Okay, maybe I'm rambling a bit now. I mean, what? Yeah. What can't you summarize into three hours? We've heard all these people say it's not him. We've heard these people say it's. You it don't like him. You can't speak French. It's not him. Done. Some, yeah. I've just summed it up. Yeah. Hire me. <laughs> so, although it took 22 days, the jury were over it. 30 minutes Ugh. they took to decide he was guilty yeah, on they all Yeah, out
2: of there. Yeah, <laughs> the fucking lives it.
0: have begun. Like years of their have Got my, a job. My children have grown up. Yeah, my
2: business is closed.
0: <laughs> so they found him guilty in all counts, and he was sentenced to 14 years in prison, which doesn't seem enough for the time we've wasted on this <laughs> fucking trial. But the maximum sentence you could get for perjury was seven years. So he was given that for the perjury and then he was given another seven years for the... (laughs) But that went against them. It caused a backlash because people were saying it's illegal to give if seven years is the maximum you should get seven years the maximum you can't then just say we'll give him another seven years because we don't like him (laughs) so protests were being held the Titchborne defense association went out had continued to rally continued to protest but arthur orton as we now know him served 10 and a half years and was released in 1884 he was a changed man he'd completely slimmed down he'd (laughs) um Become, he'd educated himself while he was in there so he could write a lot better he French. He became a Christian he would meditate on the scriptures and so when he came out he decided to start making public appearances using his fame I mean ten and a half years ago he was involved in a court case the entertainment standard in Victorian England is pretty fucking low I don't know, Becca has got a lot of time in the spotlight <laughs> so he'd show up at music halls, circuses And it says that he was surprised and disappointed that he wasn't well-received. People would throw rotten fruit at him. (laughs) I think, of course they would. Yeah, we've had a sick drag queen come on and then out bowls this guy and go, what are you going to do on a stage? (laughs) Stand there and go, I was in a court case. (laughs) Well done. (laughs) Sing me a song. Do some sad dance. Unless you've got some slam poetry about that court case, I'm not interested. (laughs) So 10 years after his release... He then sold his confession. He wrote six installments for People Newspaper and got £4,000. And with it, he set up a tobacconist shop in Islington. But he's not good at business. All his businesses are fucking failed. He's shit with money. The tobacconist went under. <laughs> so he had to start making public appearances again to make any kind of money. And he was selling autographs for like 2p each. Oh, God. He did die in 1898. He had no money, so he was buried at the undertaker's expense. They just shoved him in. But around 5,000 people came to see him buried because he was apparently a local celebrity, just for being a dick. <laughs> so his grave is unmarked. There's just like a peg, it says there, to mark oh. it. Washing peg. <laughs> But his coffin, it says the family allowed him to have his coffin inscribed with the name Sir Roger Charles Tichborne.
1: Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
2: Say so
0: my story. All right. <laughs>
2: Intense.
0: Story. I am listening Do a story. I'm proving that I'm listening because of the way my eyes are bulging. Say so my story.
2: It starts with a birth. As many do. Sheila Watson was born in the 1930s. And she had quite a repressive upbringing, but was actually quite a rebellious person. Very stubborn. Her father was a stonemason, which I thought was a little bit like a Freemason. Some secret cult. Because in The Simpsons, they call them the stonecutters, yeah. don't they? <laughs> but it's just someone who builds walls out of stone. But... He was bad-tempered and religious, which I think is probably the worst Combination,
0: concoction. angry, religious, like, fuel,
2: and then a hammer. Yeah. <laughs> Happy <laughs> religious is fine. Angry religious is scary. And if you're going to be
0: angry religious, don't have a job that requires you to smash things. <laughs> yeah. Makes me think
2: of the mother in Carrie. She was angry religious. She was all is. shades of fucked up so and her mother was a housewife she was living in an isolated part of scotland and if you don't know scotland some bits are fucking isolated they're in the middle of nowhere and she was just kind of bored with her life she was very good looking very attractive girl she went to dances with friends and there she met max garvey not that isolated then is it She's down yeah. the dance so she met max garvey who was a farmer he was quite hot and very rich so she done okay. Is that what the consensus from her family and Farming people around? Farming money though, land rich. We want cash rich. No, yeah, he was cash rich as well. Don't want cows. They dated for a while, then married in 1955, and they were seen as the beautiful couple. They were both attractive. I mean, he was. Which quite in a Scotland care. means that you just have all your teeth.
0: <laughs> no, but they were young. They've got ten fingers and ten toes. <laughs> oh, beautiful.
2: They were young, they were rich, they were happy, and they were basically the posh and becks of rural Scotland. They bought a mansion, they were living the life. Now, they had two daughters and a son, Um, and Sheila's life basically involved caring for her children and then planning events and dinners for their farming friends. Right. So she was... I mean, I don't think of the farming community as being quite a social big social event oh, world. Oh, yeah, they but... do. They
0: have balls and things all the time. Really? My friend uh, that I work with who is family of farmers, they're always going to different farming associations for certain things. And it's always a ball. I've never been to a ball in my life. And she goes to one a
2: month. My friend's sister does agriculture or something at uni. There's like she... the young farmers. They stuff, do yeah. young farmers stuff. But also they, they all get drunk in a field and then start sharing sheep and stuff. It sounds ludicrous um so they lived in a large house and they were the envy of a lot of normal couples in the era oh these people are doing really well sexually max garvey was mostly concerned with himself and he was very explorative he wanted to do all of the things and he thought of sheila as very frigid Um, He was a bit of a daredevil, and he was easily bored. Now, he had quite a lot of money. He had a private jet. Um, Oh, shit.
0: They were rich farmers. What kind of farm was this? Really rich. Money farm.
2: I think probably he had some stuff on the side going on, and he'd had a rich parent. parent, He's not milking the cows, then, is he? No. He was more of a manager, but he... Oh, my God. He was more of a businessman than a hunter-grass farmer, and... um, he, he would fly planes as well, he would go travelling, he was very explorative, he was very, he liked to get around and do a lot yeah, of stuff. and constantly knocking on her back door every night. Yeah, yeah. well, so he didn't... Poking at the letterbox. <laughs> so he didn't really let her go and accept that she just wasn't up for some stuff. Yeah. And he instead set about turning their gorgeous farmhouse into a sex den. Um, the locals knew it as the Kinky Cottage. And he decided that his family were all going to be nudists. What? So he got them all I've to I've decided. Yeah. What? The,
0: Did they have kids? What? Who's yeah, all the family? Kids.
2: They have three kids. Now, I've decided
0: that I want all my children to be looking at my dick every time they talk to me. Basically. I've also decided that if we're going to... That's... Why would you make that decision? If it's him and his wife, I could understand. I want us to be naked all the time. I want us to be natural. Why should we bother with kids? I'm sorry, but if you're going
2: to live under my roof, you're going to stare at my wang. <laughs> It's not normal. It's not normal. And he had erotic porn on the walls, which is totally inappropriate around children. He, this kind of, this sex stuff just took over his life. He was he was more concerned about that than the family life or the fact, you know, he's got children around. And he was like, well, this is how we're going to live now. He would organise parties, um, orgies, wife swapping. She was not up for this. She oh. was not okay with it. So, it wasn't so much of swapping wives as him having sex with other women. <laughs> He also drank excessively, he took drugs, and mostly it was animal tranquilizers, because obviously that was dead easy for him to get hold of, so... (laughs) I just imagine it was like a tranquilizer gun shooting at his own neck. (laughs) Put me under! (laughs) So, Sheila didn't want to do any of this, she just wanted a quiet life, she just wanted to look after her children, but her husband would not accept it. He
0: tricked her! She thought, oh lovely, he's rich, he's got this lovely house, I'm settled, I'm gonna have the perfect
2: life. Not really, I'm building a sex
0: dungeon! Yeah.
2: So he decided that one way to get her to participate, he encouraged a friend called Brian Tavendale to start coming on to his wife. And he thought maybe this young, good-looking guy will tempt her. And he would basically just open her door, no, open his door, send his wife in naked, close the door and be like, oh, I'll hear about the sex later. Just, I mean, it was abuse. He, Brian Tavendale, also had a sister called Trudy Bess who began having sex with Max regularly as well. So they'd almost swapped couples, but then. I they- don't think he was fucking his sister. No, but then they all would... They all would fuck together. They would all fuck together, despite the fact that they're brother and sister. No. So, I mean, I don't know if they actually had sex as brother and sister. For a minute, but... I felt bad
0: being, oh, I said about the Scottish people with teeth and everything. Now I don't fucking care.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't think we can judge all Scottish people by this one guy. We can. No, maybe we can. No, we can't. No. I mean, at least they didn't bring any sheep in. Well, it sounds like
0: it's coming. not
2: Derby. Where are we going to go now? <laughs> Sorry, Darby. (laughs) Um, So, (laughs) Sheila began to quite like Brian because he wasn't throwing her naked into rooms for one. I bet when he closed the door on that room, they
0: just were making noises (laughs) while having a cup of tea. (laughs) Like, Maybe. if we
2: just stamp our feet, they'll
0: think we're doing it. Oh. Like, when you're a kid and you your parents send you to bed, so I used to stand on the bottom steps of the stairs and just stamp, 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 so they'd think I was going upstairs. you go and
2: put your toothbrush under the wall to be like, oh, actually, wow, I've totally brushed my teeth. <laughs>
0: oh, I've put toilet paper
2: in, I've totally wiped my bum. <laughs> like, these are things that <laughs> like you just do. they on you, though. Yeah, <laughs> you <laughs> mould teeth. Like. You're with the skaggy bum and the gross teeth. Max was rude, demanding, and, you know, he would throw into these situation but brian was more of a brian kind of less aggressive and a little bit kinder bit of a kenneth yeah max threatened to put sheila in a clinic
0: you know, if, if you, you don't... don't fuck strangers i'm getting you sectioned yeah i will section you so help me
2: and would d- demand that she and max play games such as tossing a coin to see if he or max would have sex with her oh well it's brian this time max would be like oh, i'm just joining you as well anyway he was always going to get <sighs> some sex out of it and it was just now max kind of got bored of this about as well obviously he's a bit of a daredevil he wants to push boundaries all the time he's seen a brother and sister shagging he's like what's next yeah um so he told sheila right well we're gonna find a different couple then we're gonna start swinging with someone else and she was like i've just had enough mate yeah i'm worn out i'm worn out i've got i mean i've got on board with brian i've had sex with him can we just leave it now that's that's enough um so she said no, and um, she went to her mother, she went to a solicitor, she went to a clergyman, she went to a hotelier. I mean, I don't think she's going to the right people, but she was trying to get help, and they all said, stay with your husband. But I don't know what this hotel guy's got to do I'm with it. I say, anything. he's
0: doing himself out of some business, if anything. Yeah. <laughs> Should have told her to come
2: and stay here. Yeah. I've asked everyone about my divorce, the butcher, the librarian. I've taken a poll of everyone in the village. <laughs> yeah.
0: And they've decided. If she, if it was now, she'd have done like you and put on Twitter. So, should I leave him? What do you think?
2: <laughs> so, on fourteenth of May, nineteen sixty-eight, Max Garvey disappeared. Oh, oh shit! You all thought he was going to be the murderer, didn't you? No, Sheila, repro- I thought she'd cracked. Oh. <laughs> Sheila reported him missing a week later. I'm going to say, have a rest first. <laughs> then report missing have a nice time none of his cars were gone his private plane was untouched so there was a lot of people saying look clearly he's not run off he it was very unlikely that he would have left with no he money didn't like walking yeah he loved his jet um so in the months following sheila was seen out and about with brian seemingly as quite a happy couple so on august 14th sheila's mother edith well she's taking an interest now well too much of an interest went to the police and told them she believed Sheila had something to do with Max's disappearance right, thanks mum I mean my mum can be a little bit hard to deal with but she would back me up if she thought I'd done a murder
0: I think my mum would as well yeah like she loves Jesus and everything but I don't think she'd dump me in
2: no Sheila denied knowing anything on 16th of August the police found the body of Max Garvey it was
0: found in... Probably the... naked. <laughs> Possibly. Maybe he just died of hypothermia. That is one of the main risks of being a nudist. Maybe. Just... Occupational hazard. game God God
2: right. to death. He was found in the drains of Lauriston Castle, which was Brian Teffendale's home village that the castle was in, which is suspicious. He'd been shot. Right. So, Brian, Sheila... And Brian's friend, Alan Peters, new character, Hello. We're arrested and charged with the murders. What? Alan? Just
0: join in, why don't you? Alan. Alan. He come from? How? Why would you even arrest him? That well, guy was I'll, around. I'll come, but only if I can bring a friend. <laughs> yeah. When the kids say, if I ask someone to do a job, like, oh, can you go and deliver this message or something? They say, oh, can I take someone with me? No, I'll pick a new child. I'll pick a confident child. <laughs> like, if you're asking that question, you're not the man for this job. <laughs>
2: So when questioned there were three stories three points of view for this. So I'm going to go through Tevendale's first. Tevendale didn't, right? yep. didn't mention Alan at all Brian, right? Yeah. Brian. Tevendale didn't mention Alan at all in the in his story of the murder but he blamed Sheila but he said it had been an accident. So but he said that she was the one who She was pointing the gun at his head. Yeah. So he said he had arrived at the farmhouse to see Sheila. And obviously Max would have let him in because, you know, he's always around there shagging it. And he found Max dead. And Sheila was in hysterics saying her husband had asked her to do sexual things with a rifle. Which wasn't completely unsurprising that he might have done. Um loaded. Yeah. And she'd refused And then they'd fought over the gun and it had gone off. And Tevendale said he'd got rid of the body on Sheila's behalf. So that was his story. Now, Alan Peter's story was different. He said Sheila had asked them to kill Max because she was just sick of everything. And that he was there, but that he didn't help. Which is a likely story. He said he had helped hide the body afterwards, though. So he said Sheila had let them into the house and that Tevendale had gone and got the gun while they were sort of lurking around. They'd waited for Max to go to sleep, and then they'd crept upstairs, and that Tevendale had hit him with the gun and then shot him. I mean, unnecessary. Just shoot him. Shoot him first. I'll wake him up. Yeah. (laughs) He must know. So he hit him with the gun and then he shot him. Now, Sheila said she'd been asleep in bed with Max, and she'd been woken by someone whispering her name. Which would be creepy as fuck. She recognised the voice and realised it was Tevendale. And he'd come into the room, taken her by the arm and led her to the landing. Then she was told to stay in the bathroom and she'd locked the door. And Brian and a friend that she heard the voice of went back to her bedroom and she'd heard thumping noises. Now, remember, the children were in the house the whole time, whichever story was true.
0: they probably always stay in their rooms because if they ever leave, they're just confronted with a (laughs) naked
2: parent. That's true. You would isolate yourself. (laughs) So the men then, she says, then took the body of Max out the house while she'd stayed in front of the children's room, making sure that they didn't come out of the bedroom. They all pleaded not guilty, so they were all just blaming each other. The press went mad for the story because obviously you've got kinky cottage all the yeah. sex games they were loving it and also the idea of these two really attractive rich people and the downfall that comes with having this oh, sordid yeah. people lifestyle enjoy that don't they yeah i mean that's some good water cooler talk bit of schadenfreude yeah and the fact that they were like being punished for their actions and oh you know it doesn't pay to be rich and successful yeah your shit too yeah So, Sheila was demonised at trial, mostly because of photos of her and Brian cuddling and having a picnic after the death of her husband. So, they kind of thought, you know, if she's so happy, she's got to be involved. You don't want to wait and let the sandwiches go soggy. Uh, She did sort of disprove the comment that Peters had made regarding her letting them into the garage, because she said... There was no lock on the door. And then a locksmith had also testified that he'd come to fit a lock after the murder. The <laughs>
0: locksmith came and said, nope, there is no lock here. <laughs> like, anyone see could one lock. See, I need an expert testimony. Is there a lock on this door? The only person that can answer it is an actual
2: locksmith. There may be hidden locks that we cannot perceive. <laughs> no, but there was a lock on the door. But he said, yes, i fitted it afterwards. So... He, they didn't need to ask her to let them in. Although, maybe politeness. Yeah. We're not just going to walk in. We're not animals here. Yeah. We're just nudists. Just murderers. So, Sheila and Brian were found guilty of murder and sentenced to life in prison. And Peter's was released because they just yeah, wasn't... Yeah, Alan, fuck off. Yes, <laughs> no, he now. He's gone. <laughs> he just showed up. Like, made everything last more moment. complicated. <laughs> yeah. Go away, Alan. <laughs> so, Sheila was released. Um... 10 years after being sentenced. So she served 10 years. Yeah. I mean, I think there was quite a lot of sympathy for her in the end just because of the abuse that she'd suffered. Yeah. You know, the being coerced into You could understand behavior. being brought to the edge. Yeah. she. I mean, she'd had a tough time. She wrote a book and she remarried, but the marriage only lasted eight months. So she married again. She bought a bed and breakfast and she ran that in Stonehaven. Tevendale got out of prison Uh, they did not communicate anymore I think the fact that she'd sort of turned on him um, yeah you wouldn't they both cut ties said no thank you so Tevendale came out and he married and became the landlord of a pub in Perthshire Um, and the kinky cottage the mansion went up for sale uh, not long ago actually and that was on for £749,000 it is gorgeous that is the story of Sheila Garvey. I do have a little joke for I you. I liked it. Loved but, it. Done. Follow us on social media. Twitter. At Slaughter the Pod. Buy our t-shirts. <laughs> on threadless. On Spreadshirt. I think, I mean, go on, if you go on the Facebook page and get the links, you can follow them on there and wear our t-shirts out and about to profess your love for slaughter. I've been loving the Facebook page recently, actually. So if I had a hard day at school... Everyone's so nice in there. Where I just come out and I'm like, ugh, I've had a rubbish day. But actually, I'm a slaughter girl. I've got backing now. I've got people who support me.
0: It's oh, nice. And they'll support you too. You can email us at slaughterthepodcast at gmail.com. We're on
2: Instagram. You can support us on Patreon. Uh, just Or you can just carry on listening. And You'd have to do anything. Rate, engine. review, subscribe if you're into that. Oh yeah, shit, do all those things. That's important.
0: Listening to slaughter doesn't make you a psycho. Insisting that your children are naked in front of you all of the time does. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen